what is up everybody what is up welcome to this live stream i haven't done a live stream in a while i'm actually going to be doing this for the uh facebook group for the track stars universe and i'm going to be doing an overview of the study of james so this isn't going to be an in-depth necessary uh like verse by verse study but i am going to be covering through the book and uh, so this is going to be a little bit different from my typical Bible study. And so just to let you know, anybody who's watching on YouTube, I'm not shifting this permanently, but it will be different because I'll have some live stream questions, things like that, that I'm going to address. And again, it's not going to be as deep as I normally go because I'm going to try to squeeze this in as fast as I can, but trying to cover a whole entire book in one sitting will be a difficult challenge that I'm trying to tackle. So anyway, my name is Jason Bordeaux. I am the host of the Bible with Bordeaux podcast. I used to do business with Bordeaux, so that tends to creep through a lot. And so anyway, let's jump into it. The book of James, the book of James. So here's kind of an overview of the book of James. I actually got this from uh, J.C. Ryle, and um, it's a book I got from his. So overall, the book of James, you have um, the greeting, the statement of three key themes. So you got trials in the Christian life, wisdom, riches, and poverty. And he kind of restates those through trials and temptations in relation to God, wisdom in areas of speech and obedience, and the have-nots and the responsibility of the haves, uh, which is kind of a thesis of the letter. The uh, three themes expanded, so riches and poverty. Uh, favoritism, uh, he condemns favoritism. Problem with faith without works, which is probably one of the biggest criticisms of the book of James. A lot of people think that James is contradicting Paul, and uh, so we'll briefly talk about why he's not contradicting Paul. The uh, wisdom and speech, so the power of the tongue, wisdom from above and wisdom from below, the misuse of speech and quarrels and slander. Then we'll dive into uh, trials and temptations. And uh, planning apart from God's will, responding to oppression and anointed prayer for serious illness. Now, James is kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. So if you know the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is very much a uh, just wisdom, short nuggets here and there. The book of James is half of James is more proverb like it's do's and don'ts. So this is for those who are just trying to figure out, how do I live this Christian life? James is very concerned with our living out the faith rather than just having the doctrine stuck in our minds. And so that's why James seems very much like a, uh, it almost appears to be like law keeping or works based, but it's really not as works evidence, not works based. So that's kind of a thing I wanted to kind of just clarify. We do believe that the author of this book is, well, I believe. It is the uh, half-brother of Jesus the Christ. Uh, we believe it's the son of Joseph and Mary. Uh, Jesus' father uh, was the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave the seed to Mary, and she birthed Jesus with the virgin birth. And we believe, due to different things, such as uh, some of the words that James used in this letter were also used at the Jerusalem Council, some of the specific Greek terms. And... The dating of it, some of the other James would have already died, and the other James were just not that significant in order to have a, uh, a piece of, of canon. And then uh, another thing to know about James is when Jesus was alive, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And, you know, we're actually told in John 7, 5, that he had brothers, including James, and they didn't believe in him. And uh, so most scholars believe that their faith in Jesus didn't happen until they saw him resurrected, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, uh, 6, and 7. It says, after that, he is seen by more than 500 of his followers uh, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So... Uh, Without going into all the fine details, I actually have a video covering that specific topic. I do believe this is James, Jesus' brother. So, let's, uh, let's start reading through this, and we're going to try to do our best with the time allotted. 
So James, a servant of God and uh, Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the dispersion was uh, the twelve tribes uh, of Israel, of the Jews of this time, they were scattered because of persecution. They had some of the worst persecution in our history. And so he kind of starts it off, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so he's saying that you will be tested, and it's going to produce an endurance that will carry you through on the trial and that through that you'll be kind of perfected you'll be uh, made complete i think part of that is because we're more relying on the holy spirit we're more relying on god and his provision and not in our own and that makes us more complete i believe that you know the more problems that you see in yourself and the more you fix you know it's like whenever you get a piece of broken something from out you know maybe you ride down the street you find a piece of broken furniture you put it together you start finding all the problems you start finding the tension areas in that piece of equipment and you fix it little by little by little until it's renewed perfected and i do think that the holy spirit's doing that through sanctification and through trials we get the uh the, the best testing of the areas that need the most work so and if any of you lack wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded. He's a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Now, so the, the wisdom that we get to go through trials, it needs to come from God. And in the ways we do that is the Bible. We do that from reading the word. You know, part of the reason why he wrote this book was to give them wisdom during this time. The other is through prayer. We pray that God would help us get through a situation that the Holy Spirit would intervene in the times when we need him to. That would help us make the best decisions possible when we might not have a clear answer in scripture. Also, godly wisdom. You need to be surrounded by other believers preferably some who are mature in the faith, who've been doing this Christian walk for a long time. I think there is power in godly wisdom. There's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors, it says in Proverbs. So we want to make sure we have a few different people we can go to whenever we're going through a trial or a tribulation to look for godly wisdom. You know, this is kind of, it was very common at that time for, you know, mediums and, and, Things like that. I won't. I don't think they had tarot cards back then, but different, you know, people that did witchcraft stuff like that. You know, people were trying to figure out they needed to go to them to get, you know, wisdom and guidance. And I think some people still do now. Like there's still Christians that will go and find mediums, and the Bible is is kind of very harsh against that. Uh, God says, don't go and don't try to consult the dead. Uh, remember, Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit's alive. So we're not consulting with the dead whenever we go to Jesus for advice and go to Jesus for wisdom. So, and we want to make sure that we're not kind of splitting the two. We don't want to say, okay, let's look what the Bible says. Then let's look at the, what the world says. And we're going to see which one we like the best, right? Because whichever one we like the best of those is probably the one we're going to pick. But we have to stand firm on the word of God for, uh, for anybody who doesn't, who is not, uh, it says in verse 8, he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So no matter what we're doing in life, if we're trying to figure out whether we do it God's way or we do it the way the world tells us, then we're going to be unstable. And I feel like a lot of things are going on in our nation, in our country, where it's divided between what the Bible says and what man says, and we are very, very unstable. And I would, you know, I would even say as a country... Uh, we had that issue here in America. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Ideally here, uh, never I was studying that 
what I could find best is that when you're going through trials, those who are in, in a more impoverished situation, they can exalt in, in God, that God's going to get me out of this. God's going to help me get through this. I might not have all the things I need to, or, or what I think I need to get through this, but God's going to help get me through. And those who are not impoverished, those who might be a little more financially wealthy, well off, they should boast that at any moment in time, they could lose all of that. And God would be the ultimate reason for them getting through their situation. And so a lot of times we could pray for the wrong things to fix our problems when ultimately we should lean on God because he's the, the main source of us getting through our trials. And so no matter what we have, we can't depend on just what we have or what we're able to produce ourselves to get through our issues. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I want to uh, just kind of jump into my notes real quick because this stood out to me as I was doing my initial study about two years ago. So there's actually a few different crowns that are mentioned throughout scripture. And uh, the crown of life is one of those. And so just want to give you a quick rundown of these different crowns. Uh, the first one is the imperishable crown, which we find in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25 and 1 Peter 1, 4. Then the second crown is of rejoicing and boasting, which you can read about in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. The third crown is of righteousness. That's found in 2 Timothy 4.8. The crown of glory is the fourth one. That's found in 1 Peter 5.4. And this particular crown that we see in James is also in Revelation 2.10, the crown of life. And I don't believe that this is necessarily a crown that uh, the crown of life isn't a is not what I would consider eternal life. So a lot of people think of it a crown of life. It's a crown of eternal life. That's something we can only be gifted through Christ, received by faith. It's not something we can withstand in your trial to get at the end of it. And so I don't think this is talking about that. In Revelation, it talks about. Uh, going through this hard time and we're given a crown. And so we're, we're, we're granted a certain amount of crowns upon our ultimate judgment. And so I think this is part of that. I think this is part of that. And so moving on, we have uh, in verse 13, let no one say he is tempted. Uh, I'm let no one who would say let no one, say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lord and enticed by his own desires then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so whenever we we we're being tempted whenever we're in a situation let's not blame god for that I think, you know, there's different trains of thought that God is the cause of every single thing. Everything that happens is is caused by God. And I don't know if that's necessarily uh, a, a, fully, a full understanding of this because God doesn't tempt us, but we are tempted. And the other interesting thing is James doesn't mention an enemy. He doesn't mention like Satan is tempting you. Now, we know that Satan tempts. We know this. Because Satan tempted Jesus in, uh, in the wilderness. Remember, he was uh, fasting for 40 days. But he, he blames it on ourselves. He says that our own sinful desires is what causes us to be tempted. So we have to give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit. We have to put aside the flesh. And we have to give ourselves to God. And we have to ask the Holy Spirit to give us new desires. I think that is extremely important in our Christian walk, and let's not try to blame our temptations on God. That's one thing we should never do. So do not be deceived, uh, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits or creatures. So 
every good thing comes from God. So the bad things, the temptations, the trials, things like that, those are ultimately uh, a lot of times resulted from our own sin, our own, our own selves. And every good thing, on contrast to that, every good thing comes down from God. Every perfect gift is from above. And it says that there's no variation shadow, uh, no variation or shadow due to change. So father of lights, light a lot of times in scripture is um, kind of uh, synonymous with, with truth. So Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. Um, the, his word is a lamp to our feet. There's a lot of different verses that talk about the truth or Jesus being a light. And the reason why it doesn't cast a shadow or a shift is because the light remains steady. Now, if you change a light around an object, if you move it, then this, it'll cause a shadow. The shadow changes, things like that. But when the truth is always still, when the light is always still, uh, there is no changing of that truth. It doesn't bend to whatever. And so I think what it's saying is like, no matter what, God's truth always remains still. And using uh, shadows as kind of an image is that because his light is always still, there's never going to be a shadow that is shifted by the light. It's only shifted by us, by the object the light is shining on. So know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to receive or save your souls. So this is probably one of the more popular verses of scripture. It'd be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. Whenever we usually we do things kind of different, we speak first. We're quick to speak, slow to listen, and we're quick to get angry. I think a lot of times it's because we put our own opinions above anybody else's. We put our own thoughts above everybody else's. We don't take time to consider other people's perspectives, other people's opinions. And this is even true when we dig into scripture. You know, we tend to go into scripture with thoughts in our head, with ideas. And before we even read scripture, we were already taking in what we believe. And one of the smartest people I know, wisest people I know, is actually Sean Grant, who was the CEO of Trackstars. The interesting thing about our staff calls is when we're talking about important topics or kind of deep theological topics or, or whatever it may be, he's usually the last one to speak. He's usually the one that's kind of sitting back, waiting for everybody else to talk, to get their thoughts out there, and then he shares his thoughts. And I think that's just wise because usually the wisest person in the room is quiet until there's nothing else to be said, and then they'll speak up and say something. Unless they're teaching the room, and then it's a different scenario. But when you're at a table of, of, I would say, like equal partners in in anything that's going on, usually the wisest person waits for everybody else to talk, and then they will uh, give their thoughts after that. And I think the reason why we need to be slow to anger is, one, we need to have an anger, a, a righteous anger that's different from a selfish anger. A lot of times our anger comes from a place of, like negativity or hatred for something instead of love for something. So, you know, I was thinking about we we get angry at uh, sex trafficking because they are taking, you know, we, we, we would consider innocent people. We're taking people who were made in the image of God, using them, abusing them, and we have a love for that person, right? That person that's being abused and, and mistreated. And I think, you know, James talks about taking care of the, the poor and the widows, things like that. A lot of times they'll get abused. I think we have to have a righteous anger out of love for them instead of just responding to our hatred for people, for those who are doing it. I think there needs to be an action taking place, but it should be from a place of love because even God's wrath is caused by his love. And I can't dive into that in deep right now, but that's that's a biblical idea and concept we need to try to understand. That's why we should be slow to anger. Now, uh, 22, verse 22. 
Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and does not a, and is not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, who will be blessed in his doing. In short, when we hear the word of God, let's do the word of God. Like, it's it's kind of simple. It's saying, don't just hear it, and then walk out and go back to your old ways. Don't just go to church on Sunday, hear the pastor preach, and say, oh, that was good, and then just go back to your normal everyday self and not take into effect what he said. When you read Jesus say, don't do this, and you're like, ah, well, I don't necessarily agree with that, so I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do something else. You need to be obedient to the word. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. No, this isn't law giving. This isn't law keeping for salvation. Obedience is done out of love not out of just obligation because we um, owe him this. It's not uh, being doers of the word is not a payment for our salvation. For salvation is a receipt. Jesus gives us a receipt and we pay forth with our lives out of a thank you, not as a requirement. So <clears throat> that's the way I understand uh, <laughs> our relationship with Jesus. And if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans, widows, and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is a interesting topic because I, we live in a, a day and age where the word religion has an ugly connotation. Nobody likes the word. The majority of Christians that I know would tell you they're not religious, they have a relationship. They don't belong to a religion, they have a relationship with God. I think the definition of religion is not what we have given it or what it has turned into over the years. It's not just obeying rules in order to get to heaven. Uh, it's not just a standard of living. And there are false religions, right? There are false religions. When you think about, you know, Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, atheism, which is a religion. You know, those are what we would consider as Christians false religions, which means Christianity, following Christ, the new, the new covenant, it is a religion. It's a religion based on relationship. It's the only one that's dependent on what the other person did for us. It's not dependent on what we do for ourselves. That's kind of the big difference. And what James is saying, so he's kind of giving us, you know, the idea that the word religion isn't bad in a biblical sense. Uh, we have turned it into something that's bad because it's been abused and misused to promote other unbiblical ideas. And he says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So remember, it's a time of persecution. So even aside from the, the, the typical non-persecuted peoples, a lot of times widows and orphans would not be taken care of. They won't be treated well. They won't be given extra consideration. And James saying that we should give them extra consideration. We should take care of them, make sure that they are taken care of, and not just looking over them because they're, we're not immediately responsible for them. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of community because the early church was very communal. They shared everything amongst each other. It was a choice that they did. It wasn't a uh, requirement from their government. So it's not necessarily the same as socialism. And so I'm not saying that, but I am saying we need to have others in mind. We don't need to see others lacking where we are in an abundance. So, and to keep one uh, unstained from the world. So don't let the world influence us. We need to be influencers of the world. We need to be the ones who were promoting godly ideas and not letting ungodly ideas come and uh, indwell into us. So let's dive into chapter two. That was only chapter one. The um, sin of partiality. 
So let's start with verse 1 in chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For it is a man wearing a gold ring, or for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you called? So let's see. Um, yeah. So in, in one thing I want to say is a lot of James, uh, you can find very similar topics talked about in First Peter, as well as the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So those two are tied together. So when you're trying to study James, read First Peter. You get Peter's perspective and thoughts on some of the same topics and read the Sermon on the Mount where you see Jesus talk about a lot of the same situations. So what James is pointing out is that when you're, you know, and he's talking to people who are being persecuted and dispersed and nobody's super duper wealthy at this time necessarily because they're being persecuted and everything's being taken from them. But when you see somebody come into your assembly and you see them look really good, right? They got money, they drive up in a brand new car, you know, they, they got everything you could ever need and want and more. You shouldn't show them special favor. You should treat them just as you would somebody who does not have all those things. You should treat the, the rich and the poor, the wealthy and the impoverished the same. You should treat them the same. And I think a lot of times we tend to treat the one that has more stuff, the more wealthy person, better because it'll benefit us in the long run, right? So they might be getting rid of something, you know, to get something newer we can receive from, from that. We can obviously hope that they would give us gifts or that they would put more money into our churches or things like that. And then we show them extra special attention. And then those who we feel like we couldn't receive material things from, we tend to look away from them. And because they're not really going to benefit us material-wise, right? We don't think about them just being an image bearer of God. And we look at what we can receive from them instead of what we can give to them. And so, especially any pastors out there, you know, we are, or even, you know, artists or whoever you are watching this, you need to have the idea of God has given me something, I'm to share it equally with anybody who is willing to receive it and not treat anybody more special because they might have more stuff. That is what the world would do. That's exactly what the world does. So... If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit murder but do com if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as though as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown a mercy mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh that's a lot there. <sighs> Ideally the way I the, the way to condense this is I think showing partiality is one of the easiest things that we can do. And it's just as bad. It's just, it makes us just as guilty of being lawbreakers as committing adultery, committing murder, lying, even a little white lie. All these things, it makes us all lawbreakers. And whenever he says that you're guilty of all of it, it's, you know, I've seen this um, illustration of, you know, if you're hanging on from a cliff and you got a chain with a bunch of links, it's like every link matters. If you cut one link, you're doomed. It's the same way with this. And he's not saying that if you keep the law, you will be saved. What he's saying is live as though you're being judged, 
right? Pretend, it's almost like pretend you're being judged so you don't live a sinful life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, we strive for, uh, to, to live holy, to live lives that are set apart from the world. And so, but ultimately, you know, then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So try our best not to judge those who we feel like might not be as important because they don't have more stuff. Because if we do judge them and say they're less important than those who have a bunch of stuff, we are lawbreakers. And again, this isn't a works by or salvation by works mentality. This is an obedience mentality, a Christian lifestyle mentality. So please, please don't get that messed up. And uh, and speaking of which, let's jump into the controversial part of James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food? And one of you says to him, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving him things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Uh, yeah, let me stop there real quick. Let me stop there. So this is the part where everybody struggles. A lot of people thought this is why the early church uh, wasn't sure whether or not to accept this letter as as canon. Because it sounds like he's contradicting Paul. Because Paul says that faith alone, by faith alone, we are accepted, right? By faith, grace by faith. And so what, what James is saying here is not you have to have works to be saved. He's not saying that. What he's saying is a true faith in Jesus Christ, a true renewing of your life, of your mind, will naturally result in good works. Ephesians 2.10 were made for good works. His masterpiece made for good works. So what he is saying is not, and that's why he says, I will show you my faith by my works. What he's saying is, you're saying you have faith. I don't see that, right? He's not seeing faith because he's not seeing works. Just like your pastor, right? Tell me if your pastor was preaching and preaching and preaching, and then he went and lived a sinful lifestyle, would you believe he had a faith in Christ? Probably not. Probably not. In the same way, what he is saying is, I will show you my faith by my works. And then he goes into the example of Abraham. So we'll jump into that. <coughs> Goodness. Um, all right. So you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So just believing in God is not the key to salvation. Do you want to be shown, you a foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active long, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, that that's that's the that's the scripture that fights uh, that is fought the most. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. So what he's saying here is that if your faith doesn't have any type of action behind it, it's 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 really useless. It does no good to nobody. You're not serving God. You're not serving one another. And that's why we're here, is to serve God and serve one another. And so your faith is useless. It's, it's dead, is what he's saying. And what he's talking about, the funny thing is, is Paul talks about Abraham being justified by faith, not by works. And then what James is saying is he, his, his faith was completed by his work. So what he's saying is they don't operate differently. They work together. Your faith causes your work. And if you don't have faith, then you don't have a work, you know, 
it's 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 useless. It's it's no good. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. If a pastor can be filled with the Holy Spirit, he can be filled with the knowledge of God. He can be filled with every biblical, like revelational thing. But if he doesn't share it with anybody, if he doesn't work to preach the gospel, then it's useless. It's absolutely useless. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And this is the one that makes me not want to do these videos. So, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the, sh the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The the, the tongue, what we say is so important. And that's why he, he kind of hits on teachers first is because teachers are telling people the truth of God. I think any teacher that isn't careful with what they say needs to be questioned. I think a teacher should feel a, a burden when they teach. Anybody who teaches the Word of God flippantly, I can't take them serious. It, it is so important, and James is saying here, you're going to be straight, you're going to be judged with greater strictness. God does not take the teaching. That's why he says in the Old Testament, whenever he was saying, if a prophet comes to you, and they prophesy something that happened and it doesn't pass, it doesn't happen, kill them. Because I don't want people saying this is coming from God when it's a lie. That's how important God's word is. And so he's, he's talking specifically strictly to teachers in that first verse there. But then the rest of us, anything that we say is important. Words matter. And then he goes on to say how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord Father, Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I feel like a sense of like, I don't know when I'm reading this. It's, it's like super tough to read this. <sighs> From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We have got to be an accurate representation of our faith by what we say. We can't worship God. We can't sing whatever types of songs, hymns. We can't quote his scripture and then turn around and curse other people. The The tongue is such a hard thing to tame. You know, he, he he's again, but he says in verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless, evil, full of deadly poison. These are very strict, harsh, intense words that James is saying. Every word matters. And I think this goes back to the beginning of chapter 2, why it's so important to tame or to uh, to, to be slow to speak. Or back in, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 1, slow to speak because... When we say something, it starts something. Every word that flows from our mouth, especially if it's in front of you, you can't take words back. If you're in front of a person and you say something, you can't just pull it back in and out of their ears and out of their minds and consciousness. It's there. And if you say the wrong thing, you have sparked a fire. And I think that's why anytime we're talking, we should be more mindful of what we say. Jesus talks about no, let no idle word. He talks about no, no meaningless word. We shouldn't let those come out of our mouths. So, wisdom from above. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 13. 
who was wise and understanding among you for his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and or uh, and be false to the truth this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but it is earthly unspiritual demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder in every vile practice but wisdom from above is pure peace uh, then peaceable gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I think, again, you know, verse 14, if you have bitter, jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be uh, false to the truth. We got to check ourselves. We got to make sure, you know, pride is a, is, a, is a beast. Pride will drag us down it will make us ruin ourselves. And if we are, and that's where jealousy, jealousy, selfish ambition, all those things, uh, they kind of are related to pride. And so when we do things out of that, then we are in a bad place. <clears throat> it says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, like that's again, James is using very harsh, harsh wisdom or harsh, yeah, harsh wisdom. That, that's good. Harsh wisdom. But uh, again, verse 13, halfway through by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And uh, and so when you do it, let it be meek. You know, meek is like a um, controlled power, I think is the way it's defined. And I think, you know, you don't boast in yourself. You don't, you know, let everybody know about how, you know, godly you are. That, that's kind of a, uh, I don't know, that's, that's, that, that clashes telling everybody the greatness of you because of your, uh, your, your, your faith. I think that's hard. Anyway, uh, don't have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. Chapter four. Where are we at? 42 minutes into this thing. Let's see if we can finish this out strong. We're all, uh, over halfway there. So warning against worldliness. Take a sip of my coffee. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your desires and do not, uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is um, this is one of those verses that a lot of people like to use for those who are trying to be relevant to the world. So, worldly things are, are sinful things. And I'm not saying that, okay, sinful things are worldly things. Let me, let me phrase it like that. Doesn't necessarily mean that anything that the world does on a regular basis or things like that is sinful in and of itself. So, there's amoral and immoral. We actually talked about this on the latest Solomon's Porch podcast show. So, immoral is is what we would look at as as worldly things that are immoral things that are amoral are not what james is talking about here there's a difference a genre of music is amoral it's without moral value right the things that people say in that song that is what makes it moral or immoral so these are the things that we need to think about when we're talking about being an, uh, a friend of the world, when we're, we're, we're changing our godly attitude to fit a non-godly atmosphere, that is, is making yourself an enemy of God. And a lot of times, the things that we do, we fight, we, we argue, it's all because of our selfishness. It's all because, like he says in verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And a lot of that is just out of our selfish desire. And I think a lot of times whenever you try to become a friend of the world, when you're trying to become a friend of, of those who were in sin, a lot of times we do it to gain things that we don't have. 
and that'll cause a quarrel with those around us, and that'll cause a quarrel between us and God. Because it says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so, ideally, we want to make sure we're not, um, you know, Paul says in, in Romans 12, 2, don't conform to the ways of the world, right? Don't conform to more specific sinful nature. Don't go back to your sinful nature just to get things that you don't have. Well, don't do it, period, but especially just to gain things that you don't have. In verse 5 of chapter 4, or do you suppose that it is uh, to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I love this. That resist the devil. First of all, James doesn't tell us to to seek persecution, right? Paul doesn't tell us to seek persecution. So I don't think we're supposed to look for it, right? Uh, that's just one point I wanted to say. But two, resist the devil, he will flee from you. This means, like, this resist means to stand firm. It means to stand on the word of God, stand on the principles of God, stand in your faith, and he will flee from you. It says he will flee from you because whenever he sees the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, he knows he doesn't have a battle. That's a preaching point right there. If I preach again soon, I might have to use that scripture. So, but you got all these things going on, you know, in in chapter four. And then, you know, God opposes the proud. So you got to put down your pride. You got to put down your selfish desires. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners. And it was funny because at this time, whenever I was teaching this initially was when COVID hit and everybody was all into hand washing. And that was a very, very uh, important thing to keep you from getting COVID at that time. That was one of the big things is they were reiterating, you know, wash your hands, don't touch your eyeballs, stuff like that. So cleanse your hands, you you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, but wretched and mourn the weep, um, but wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So whenever we're, we're we, we, when we notice we've been in sin, when we've been selfish, when we've been prideful, greedy, arrogant, we need to cling to God. We need to go to him, draw near to him. And we need, <laughs> we need to mourn the way we were like, if you never mourn your sinful behavior, the Holy Spirit might not be working in you. If you can sin and not feel any way about it at all, that's an issue. And James says, be wretched and mourn and weep because we have been selfish and greedy and been quarreling and all these things. We need to have a sense of repentance. And repentance in both senses, where it's, Lord, I'm so sorry that I did not represent you well. I didn't live. I wasn't being godly in this moment. I wasn't being filled with the Holy Spirit. I wasn't showing the fruit of the Spirit. I was turning back to my old man, the the, the selfish, sinful nature within uh, the old me. And I apologize. I don't want to do that again. That's the kind of attitude we need to have when we have caught ourselves in sin. Because as soon as we stop feeling like that, we start feeling like sin's fine. There's, there's no problem at all. Sin leads to death, and death is a separation between us and God, or between you and another person. So we don't want to be separated. We want to be drawing near to him. So verse 11, do not speak evil against another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you are, uh, but if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law. You're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who was able to save and to destroy, but you are to, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
I think this is, again, when you're talking about selfish desire, you're talking about greedy, selfish ambition. You're looking at other people and you're comparing yourselves to them. You're saying, you know, at least I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. I didn't stumble in the way they did. I'm doing so well. I'm doing so great. This can be prideful and elevate yourself. We, we don't need to look at other people and think we're better than them and think that we're following God's law better, that we're uh, being a better Christian, that we are, you know, more holy, you know, things like that. We don't need to look at others and do that because, you know, they always say, you know, one finger, you got at least three pointing back at you. And unless you're pointing like that, but ideally we don't need to speak evil against one another and, uh, and judge one another in the, in the aspect of, or with the intention of boasting ourselves, making ourselves feel better. So verse 13, uh, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you were a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and well, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. It's kind of a lot thrown in here. But ultimately, again, it's it's addressing, addressing the selfish um, ambition there. He's saying, don't just... Don't just think that you're you have everything planned out that you're going to do whatever you want to do. You need to look at what God's plan is, because you know there is a sovereignty. We have a sovereign God. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. In verse fourteen, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Our life is here and gone. We need to be more focused on what God has planned for our life than what we have planned for ourselves. And when we do that, we we're laying down the, the arrogance of the idea that I'm in control of everything. We put that down and we say, God, I, I submit to your will. I submit to your control. And, um, and yeah, so chapter five, now we're rounding this out at 52 minutes. <laughs> Sorry for the countdown, but I normally don't do videos this long. So this is a, a first for me. Got to take another sip of my coffee. Come now, you rich. Okay, sorry. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat uh, and will eat your flesh like a fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the, of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud and are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, or fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is, uh, <laughs> ideally, you know, in today's world, this is the idea that you don't, have people slaving for nothing and you getting fat off of them. Now this can be taken a bunch of ways. I don't think this means we shouldn't invest, right? The idea of investing is you, you put money into uh, a stock or a company or even an artist or whatever, and you're betting on their chance to, to increase what's coming back to you. That's an investment. And you think about it, Jesus, you know, he's invested in us. He's requiring us to give back to him more than what he gave us, right? So he gave us his life. We're to be fruitful and multiply. And especially in the spiritual aspect, we're to make disciples and things like that. So what 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 this is not addressing just the basic investment idea. This is that you are you're you're abusing this is like the the foundation of American slavery, right? When the American slaves or when African slaves, when slaves were purchased, brought over here, they were beaten down, they weren't given anything. I'm not going to say they weren't given what was due to them. They really weren't given anything except the essentials of, of life. 
and that was only to keep them alive to produce more for those who owned them. And this is digging a, this is setting a fire right here with my my tongue. But you know, James is is calling out that type of behavior. He's saying, don't just sit back and relax in your riches while you have people slaving for you and you're letting them suffer. James is speaking out against that here. We can't do that uh, because we're getting, we have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What he's saying is you're, you're essentially like a, a pig who's getting fattened up so you can become barbecue. So you can be taken out. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way I read that. And, uh, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. <clears throat> so you're taking people and you're, you're abusing them for your own selfish gain. Uh, we cannot do that. We, that is not a godly thing to do. And it wasn't then, it's not now. So verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Uh, sorry, I was reading a notification. We've had Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or on earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes, yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Um, that's a lot there. Patience and suffering. We're, we're, we're called to endure. In the first part of, of James, we're, we're told that the testing temptations will build an endurance in us. So... You know, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We, we need to understand that, that Jesus will, he is coming. Whether or not he's coming now, whether he's coming next year, next decade, next generation, we don't know. However, we remain steadfast. We remain um, in, in confidence of what he can do, what he has done. And will continue to, to do through us. You heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you look at Job. He was attacked in so many ways. But he was steadfast in the goodness of God. He didn't question the... He, he might have questioned some... He might have questioned some things. Like why did God let him live? Things like that. But he never questioned the goodness of God. He never questioned the sovereignty of God. He never questioned the, the power of God. None of those things he questioned. And so we shouldn't do it either. We should stand fast no matter what we're going through. Remember, he's writing to a people who were suffering, that were covered in wax and lit up like candles in the middle of the streets. I mean, these are people that were having some, some hard situations, and James is telling them, hey, keep the faith. Stand firm. So no matter what you're going through, because I know if you're watching this, you're not covered in wax and being burnt as a candle in the middle of a street. But you're probably going through something, and I'm encouraging you to stand fast or be steadfast in the Word of God. And, uh, and right there at the end, uh, do not swear either by heaven or on earth or by any other. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, just simple. I, I think we shouldn't have a need to swear by anything. I think if we're known for our word, if we're known to be honorable people, then your yes is simply a yes to anybody who hears it, and your no is simply a no to anybody who hears it. And you don't need to swear by anything. You know, I swear to God, or I swear to on my mother's grave. Like we don't, we shouldn't even need to do that, right? That that doesn't make sense. If we're always honest, uh, Christian, faith-filled people, we shouldn't. That shouldn't be an issue. The prayer of faith. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of righteous of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruits or fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will continue uh, and will cover a multitude of sins. So right here at the very end, let him pray. Uh, there is uh, an emphasis on prayer, on intercessory prayer, praying for one another. The anointing of the oil <coughs> is a couple different things here. One. Oil was, was often used as a fragrance. Uh, they also had medicinal oils. They were things that were made of natural herbs and, and, and oils that were medicinal. You know, I have a, a friend who sells essential oils and things like that. And she uses it to help with headaches and different things of that nature. So some of the oil could be used in that regard too. It could be like an essential oil that you would see today in a, a, a health market type of a, a thing, whatever it's called. And then prayer, just the, the emphasis here of having faith and the prayer of the faith will save the one who was sick, the Lord will raise them up, is that have faith that God will heal them. You know, there's there's the aspect of, you know, God wants everybody to be healed. I think in one way or another, God does heal. So if you're not healed on earth, you are healed in heaven. And that is not just a cop out. You know, I feel like some people... Look at that as a cop-out. I think that Jesus tells us to pray. Paul tells us to pray. James tells us to pray. Peter tells us to pray. We're told multiple times to pray for one another, and uh, and the Lord will heal them. And I think there's multiple ways that healing takes place. I don't think it's just the healing that we see. And uh, and so that's, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. And just talking about the uh, the prayer of a righteous person, I think part of the you know the emphasis of this as book is living living out your righteousness. It's not living to obtain righteousness; it's living from a state of righteousness. It's living a holy life, and you know he says here that the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. I think part of that is because you know a righteous person understands that everything is one. Uh, is in God's hands. It's it's empowered by God, and our prayers are nothing if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elijah was, he was, and uh, he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit in the way that we were, but he was given the um, the power of of the Holy Spirit in order to hold off the rain and then to have the rain come down. And very last thing. He says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings someone back, then let them know whoever brings them back is um, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul in death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think this is kind of, um, again, you're thinking about these early believers who are probably wanting to stray from the faith because of what they're going through. And a lot of Christians have this struggle. We live life, we're thinking we're going to do all the right things and everything's going to be fine and dandy and hunky-dory and whatever kind of word you want to use that insinuates perfect. It's not going to be perfect. Now, James is reiterating, you're going to go through trials. You're going to have temptations. You're going to have these things. It's not going to be easy. And they already know this. And we're told about Paul that it's not going to be easy. We're told by Matthew it's not going to, or by Jesus in the book of Matthew, it's not going to be easy. You know, I, I think whenever we become a Christian, we should have some type of a warning sign that flashes that says it's not going to be easy. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be rocky roads. There's going to be situations where you feel like, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He never does, but... Sometimes we might feel like he has because we don't have a, a clear answer every single time. But that means that you should cling closer to God, get in his word more, pray, 
ask for prayer, seek godly counsel to get through the trials. We need to be selfless. We need to be focused strictly on what God wants for our lives and not stray away from the faith. And if you see someone doing that, then you need to try to bring them back to, and, and this is one of those weird things where it's like, well, only God can, can bring someone to himself. I think this is, this is a really good indication that there's someone who's struggling with their faith. They're, they're just not understanding scripture. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Maybe they just don't have a good doctrinal understanding of, of, of God or of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. And this is a way for you to be able to break things down for them, discipleship and things of that nature, so that they will be more steadfast in their faith. So that is my overview of the book of James. It's a lot, hour five minutes. I apologize if I bored you. Hopefully I didn't. Hopefully it was helpful to some. I am breaking this down piece by piece, a lot more in depth. A lot more detailed. Uh, part six now is going to be going up. I think tomorrow from from this night that I'm recording this, and I uh, and we're still in chapter one in six parts. So I'll try my best to condense this the best I could. Hopefully it helped. I hope uh, this can be somewhat inspirational for you and helpful. And I hope you have a blessed week, a blessed year. I hope 2021 is better than 2020. And I hope that uh, that your your knowledge of God grows this year. I hope that your faith in Christ grows and that your Christian walk is strengthened. So thank you all so much and God bless.